Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the ride. Hi, I'm Heidi Malako. I'm here with Julie Goodnight, and today we're going to talk about the Beginner's Guide to Groundwork. So whether you have just gotten a horse and you want to know how to do groundwork, how to gain your horse's respect from the very beginning, or whether you have ridden your whole life and just never focused on groundwork, you just always go ride but need to get some respect going with your horse, we're going to talk with Julie about some tips to get you going. So hi, Julie. Hello. So tell us a little bit, Julie, about the benefits of groundwork. You know, I could go on and on all day about the benefits of groundwork, but there's some really important basics that I think people that have done groundwork come quickly to realize are important benefits. Okay. For me, um, you know, anyone that's been around horses for any length of time has come to understand that in the horse herd, there is a hierarchy or mm-hmm. what's commonly called a pecking order. And, in fact, the definition of the hierarchy in the horse herd is the behavior is called a linear hierarchy, which means that each and every individual of the herd is either dominant over or subordinate to each and every other individual, And uh, meaning there's no equality in a horse herd, and each horse is either dominant or subordinate to another. And so in our interactions with horses, we really have to keep that in mind. That's all horses know and understand. And mm-hmm. so as we interact with a horse, um, all he knows and understands is, is horse and herd behavior. And in his mind, um, you are another herd mate and you are either dominant over him or subordinate to him. And so as you do groundwork, one of the greatest benefits is to establish your authority of the, over the horse so that he understands, um, you know, he has to to respect your authority. He has to look to you for guidance and advice of where he should go and what he should do. So gaining respect for your authority is a big thing. And then as we do groundwork, just in terms of general concepts, um, we want to keep in mind how horses establish dominance in the herd. And it's very clear and very simple. And you can watch any group of horses and, and see this at work all the time. But there's, there's only two factors involved in establishing dominance in the herd. Factor number okay. one is the dominant horse controls the resources. And so if you think of resources or anything that the herd values, and so, you know, we see this most around feeding time. So the dominant horse... Uh, you know, the resources in general are food, water, shelter, shade, um, sometimes other horses. So the dominant horse controls the resources, and he always gets to eat first. He always gets to drink first. He always gets the shady spot. So the other factor that is involved in establishing dominance in horse herds, and the one that comes more into play in groundwork, the dominant horse always controls the space of the subordinate horse. And Again, if you watch any group of horses, you can see constantly horses, uh, the dominant horses moving subordinate horses out of their space. You will on occasion see a dominant horse herding or moving around a subordinate horse when you introduce a new horse into the herd. 
of the dominant horses will start kind of chasing that horse and and actually herding him this way or that way so that the new horse understands the hierarchy of the herd. And so as we do groundwork with horses, we're mimicking all the stuff that actually happens in the herd. And so as we start controlling the horse's space and moving him around this way or that way, uh, the horse not only comes to respect your authority more, but he also gets more focused on you and more concerned about you. And um, so another really great benefit of doing groundwork with horses is getting your horse's focus on you so that he is less distracted by all the other things going on around him. He's more concerned about you and what you're doing and making sure he's in good standing with you than he is worried about looking all around and, you know, socializing with other horses and and all of that. I think that's a great point, Julie, because as you're talking about this, you don't want, like, I think a lot of people think subordinate, insubordinate, and this big ruler that rules with a heavy hand. And you're not talking about that at all. You're talking about a firm set of rules, but the horse really craving that authority and that respect and wanting to do a good job within that set of rules. Absolutely. That's that's what life in the herd is like. A horse, um, more than anything else in the world, a horse yearns to be accepted into the herd. And to do that, he has to show his respect for authority and he has to show he's willing to be a good herd mate and all of that. And, and so um, horses crave uh, authority and leadership and structure and rules because it makes them feel safe. And um, the two things that motivate horses more than anything else in the world are safety and comfort. And so we can give both of those things to the horse through groundwork. We, um, you know, we move him around, we control his space, and we establish certain rules of behavior. And that all gives the horse a sense of security and safety. There is, there is order in my world. And I and he comes to understand if he follows the rules, things are good. And if he doesn't, he's going to get in trouble. And just like humans, that gives us a sense of security. And then comfort comes when the horse um, tries hard, shows his respect, does what we ask him to do. We let him rest and we pat on him and um, we make him comfortable. And so those are the things, you know, people, if you ask most horse owners what motivates their horse the most, most people will say food. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually true. Um, the behaviorists will tell you that uh, horses are more motivated by a sense of, of safety huh. and comfort than they are from food. And that's a great example because a lot of, especially new horse owners, may have had experience with a dog. And that's where the training and the motivations are quite different, correct? They're totally different. So, you know, dogs are pack animals and they hunt cooperatively so they share the food. Horses aren't reliant on other horses for food. They can find the food. If you just turn them loose, they will find the food. They can Mm -hmm. eat all things. Um, Horses are reliant on the herd for safety, um, for comfort. Um, They will not lay down and rest. They will not lay down and sleep, for instance, unless they feel safe, unless they feel like there's um, the protection of the herd around them. Um, so 
horses are not reliant on the herd at all for food. And, and although people use food um, to train tricks and whatnot, it is not the greatest motivating factor. Um, safety, um, which comes from structure and authority, and then comfort, just simple comfort, or, or is what motivates horses. I think that's that's wonderful to hear. And just that knowledge for a new horse person or someone that hasn't done groundwork before kind of helps set up a mentality of how they're going to approach the horse. So tell me a little bit about, especially someone who has their first horse, what are the pitfalls they might fall into, and how have you seen people act? that does not line up with what you're just talking about. Another really important way that horses are different from dogs, if if you're around a rude dog that comes and bumps into you and slobbers all over you or whatever, it's obnoxious, but it isn't going to hurt you. Um, when a horse is oblivious to your existence and has no respect for your space, um, he he can hurt you badly without even trying, just by stepping on you, bumping into you, knocking you down. Um, they can be big, dangerous animals. And one of the one of the other and perhaps most pragmatic uh, benefits of groundwork is that your horse learns good manners, and it, that makes him safer and more pleasant to be around. Mm-hmm. And one of the Greatest pitfalls I see, you know, you just mentioned a really good point that you have to have sort of this general awareness of how you interact with horses and why you do things that you do. And one thing that is really lacking is people's um, lack of awareness of spatial issues. Horses are extremely spatially oriented. Humans are not. Right. And so... First of all, we love horses and we tend to want to be lovey-dovey with them and up in their face and cozy and cuddling with them. But when you get too close and too cozy with the horse, to him that means that you don't have any space and that he doesn't need to respect or worry about your space if you're not defending your own space. And so if you, at any clinic I do, I can just look up and look around and you see horses that are bumping into the person leading them, they're headbutting them, they're turning around and nibbling on them. Um, they sometimes will be totally oblivious even to the person on the end of the lead rope like they're not there. They're looking all around, they're uh, ramming into them with their shoulder. Uh, so the I see that all the time and people aren't always aware of what a big problem that is because of the the obvious safety concern. But it also means your horse has absolutely no respect for you and your space, and he thinks he's the one in charge. Hmm. That doesn't sound like a good plan, especially if you're a new horse owner and you don't maybe know what to do once that behavior escalates. Well, I, I always say you you don't want a thousand pound scared rabbit telling you what to do. <laughs> so um, you know it it does escalate because again horses feel safe when there's structure and rules and um, and they are expected to act a certain way. When they are expected to act a certain way, they will. When that is gone or not present, they become more and more anxious and nervous. They start looking around, looking for things to worry about. 
And um, and then, you know, horses are funny how uh, they will sometimes act like you're not even present. They won't look at you. They look away. Mm-hmm. Um, they run into you. Um, that's, those aren't just accidental happenings. That's behavior. And that he doesn't have any respect for your space or your authority. And he doesn't have awareness and he's not concerned about your safety, he's only concerned about his. Um, so that's not a that's not a good situation to be in with a horse. So you're saying by being lovey-dovey and not correcting these small things, you're actually teaching your horse not to focus on you and creating a possibly dangerous situation. Yes, you're you're acting like a subordinate horse um, when you yield to the horse's space. Hmm. It's very black and white to a horse. If you yield to his space, he is dominant over you. If he yields to your space, you are dominant over him. And so people tend, because humans are not, particularly American humans, are not very spatially aware. And um, so when the horse does little things, like turn around and nudge you, we think that's cute. I don't, but some people do. and we don't recognize it as a dominant action or a dominant behavior. And it escalates. You're totally right. It's just uh, so that's a horse that's checking out what, what what your spatial boundaries are. And if you have none and you do not defend them, then he's walking all over you. Well, and then all over Facebook, you just see photos of people with their head next to their horse, and that's the love image, and that's the peaceful image. What image would you like to see there that really does show a good relationship with your horse? Would it just be you leading the horse and walking straight ahead? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. One thing is I want the horse focused on me um, and not everything all around him. So if if I'm riding or howling a horse from the ground and he's looking all around with uh, he's paying no attention to me whatsoever um, that shows there's a blatant disregard for me um, so basically and this is what we talk about in clinics all the time but your horse has two choices he when you're handling him or riding him he should either be entirely focused on you and what you're asking him to do or he should be totally zoned out to his environment. So if he puts his head down and walks his ears to the side and acts like nothing in the world exists and he's just hanging out with you, then that's a good sign. That's the image I want to see. Um, I, I I don't like to be too up close and personal. Sure, my personal horses, I might, um, you know, pat on him a little bit and, and uh, hug him every now and then. But just in general handling, I want my horse to be very clear about where my space begins and ends. And no part of his body should ever enter into my space unless I ask him to. So he doesn't get to just, you know, like that root obnoxious dog I was talking about earlier that Mm -hmm. just comes up and kind of runs into you or or sticks his nose under your elbow and makes you pet him. Um, Right. That's one thing to tolerate in a dog. It's obnoxious, but it's not dangerous. Um, in, a, in a horse, it's actually dangerous. So I don't ever want the horse acting in any way, shape, or form like that. 
And um, so I want to have a real clear boundary. Um, and the and the less I know a horse, or the less established our relationship is, the more definitive I'm going to be about establishing those boundaries. And so this is a pitfall that people new to horses um, don't always understand: is that your horse is from the very first encounter you have with that horse, he's thinking about who's the dominant one: is it him or is it you? And he starts testing the waters by seeing if he can control your space or if you're going to control his space. And if you're oblivious to all that while it's happening, then the horse right away forms this opinion that you he doesn't have to respect your space. And so now we have a, a relationship based on him thinking he's the boss of me. He's the boss. Yeah. And, Julie, that makes so much sense when we're on the TV shoots, why people can see such a difference when you take over and are the one to do some groundwork, especially if people have had this relationship and all of that's been sized up ahead of time. And so they know they might be in control or be the leader when it comes to that human. And then you step in and you are going to be firm at first and show those rules and all of a sudden they think, oh, my gosh, who is this? What are they doing? I better, you know, change my ways pretty quickly. Well, because all of this type of interaction is based on the horse's natural behavior, um, horses respond extremely quickly, and it's a one-on-one deal. I There's nothing I can do to help you form a good relationship with your horse. Only mm-hmm. you can do that. I mean, I can give you the information you need, and I can coach you along the way. But just because the horse respects my authority doesn't mean he's going to respect yours. And we do see that a lot on the shoots, um, horses that have become very ill-mannered and disrespectful because the owner has tolerated it and allowed it and in some instances inadvertently encouraged it. And then um, I'll take hold of the horse and within a minute or two the horse is a totally different animal because they know they understand leadership they i always say if horses could vote we would not have the mess in congress today that we have because you can't fake being a leader to a horse you're either a leader or you are not (laughs) and if you're not the leader then that means he is This is a good time to talk about Margie and her Palomino that we did have on the Horse Master shoot and ended up doing some groundwork. And tell us a little bit about what you remember of that episode. Well, I remember every minute of it distinctly because, first of all, it was a really cool horse, a beautiful, beautiful Tennessee walker. He was a mature, well-trained, and he should have been a well-mannered horse. And he was when she got him. And she did all the right things when she decided to get a horse. She got a mature, well-trained horse. But no matter well-trained the horse is, if he does not have any respect for your leadership, he's going to take charge. He's going to take over and do what he wants. And that was the case of this horse. And he, uh, she... Here's another really common thing that I see all around the country is she somewhere somewhere along the line somebody told her you should do groundwork with your horse and she said oh okay um, so she started fiddling around with him on the ground but groundwork's only good if it's good groundwork and if it's done 
um, with awareness and purpose and in a meaningful way. And so she was moving this horse around right and left and whatnot, but it was a, to the horse it was as if she didn't even exist. He He was looking away from her always. He would uh, crowd her space constantly. She, as a result, was constantly backing out of his space. So here she is doing mm-hmm. groundwork every day with this horse, and all she was doing in the groundwork was proving to the horse that he controlled her space. Um, Making it worse. Yes. And so I always like people to keep in mind action and reaction. So if your horse makes an action to which you react, he is in charge of you. If you make the action to which he reacts, you are in charge of him. So when you're doing groundwork with a horse, if he moves towards you and you back away, he's making an action and you're reacting to it. He's controlling your space. We think we're doing groundwork because he's in a rope halter and a lead and we're moving him around, but groundwork done poorly is... um, does not not only has does not have a good effect it has actually a negative effect and that's what was going on with margie and um the great thing and about this particular episode was uh, she just had to step up to the plate and change what she was doing she needed to first of all have an understanding of an awareness of why she was doing what she was doing and she needed to change her body language and changed her perspective on how she expected the horse to react. And he immediately responded, uh, immediately responded. So So we've talked about what happens if you don't do these things, but we haven't really nailed down what exactly to do. So somebody that is just starting out or picturing what you taught Margie right away what are the basic hands-on things that, that you can do as, as first you're just leading your horse? What can you make sure that you're doing to give your horse the clear understanding that he should focus on you? Well, to me, there's three pretty fundamental uh, groundwork exercises um, that we're going to do. And one is working on the horse standing still like a statue when you ask him to. The other is working on his leading manners. And then thirdly, we're going to work on circling the horse. And that is sort of mimicking the herding of the horse um, that you would see. But the main thing I want to get across to the horse is that I control his feet, I control his nose, I control his shoulder, and I control his hip. If I can control all of all four parts of those parts, I can probably I'm probably in control of the whole horse. And so with each of these exercises we're working on controlling different parts of the horse. And so on this I start right off in clinics with this exercise of standing still like a statue. And everything in all of the groundwork that I do with my horses, I want to be um, very clear on my body language and I want to be always giving signals to my horse either gestures or just my posture and stance and position that have meaning to the horse in, in terms of how he should act. And so 
when you are teaching the horse a command to stand still. And I don't mean stand approximately in the same location. I mean stand still and do not move a foot. No moving. <laughs> no moving at all. Um, I want to stand uh, out in front and a little bit to the side of the horse, facing him with my toes pointed towards his shoulder, about, oh, at least four or five feet away. The more control over the horse, the more distance I can control him, the, the greater the distance I can control him from. I do not want to be standing close to the horse. I do not want to give the impression I am holding the horse. I want to be standing with a totally slack lead. And if he makes the decision to move a foot, I will tell him that's wrong by snapping the lead rope and uh, kind of, you know, bumping the rope so that it gives him a little bump on his face. And mm -hmm. then when he stands still, I'll say, whoa. And if I make that correction every time he moves a foot, um, he'll very quickly, if your timing is good and you're consistent, within a couple of minutes, the horse should realize he doesn't get to move unless you ask him to. Now, that yeah. sounds kind of simple, but when you consider horses are extremely impulsive animals and, you know, horses are are pretty much defined as being flight animals, that's their strongest mm -hmm. behavior, um, Flight is sort of the very definition of impulsivity. Um, so flight is very much a run first and think later, if at all, behavior. So horses are used to moving whenever and wherever they want. And I see trained horses with experienced people all the time. Mm -hmm. These horses fidget around when they ask him to stand still. And so uh, through this simple little exercise of asking the horse to stand still like a statue, what you're teaching him is that he has to think before he moves a foot, and he has to get your permission before he moves a foot. So it's actually a very, um, very significant and meaningful exercise. And uh, sometimes you have to practice it. Uh, you know, if you have a, a older, well-trained, Course, most of the time he will stand still. That doesn't necessarily mean he's standing still on your authority. It may just right. mean he wants to stand still. So sometimes you have to practice this in an area or at a time when your horse may not want to stand still. Uh, for other horses, this is not a simple exercise at all. If you have a, a hotter-blooded or a less-trained horse that's constantly fidgety and fussy and pawing and doesn't want to be there, um, this right away, you have a challenging exercise. But if you have a calmer, uh, more trained, experienced horse, he may be standing still because he doesn't want to put out any effort. Um, so you may have to do this exercise with him and then at a time or a place where he does not want to stand still, like when all the other horses are being turned out or uh, at some right. time or something like yeah. that. Well, and that's what I've been working on with my horse was he wanted to go too quickly when he went out to pasture. So we just stood still then. He would he does the exercise great any other location except there, and that's where we needed to work on it. Julie, exactly. I wanted you to talk a little bit about the timing within that exercise and what they need to be outfitted with um, 
can you comment on well, those two things? Um, because that's yeah. really important. In general, for doing groundwork, um, I prefer a rope halter um, and a long training lead made of heavy, high-quality rope. So um, a marine-quality rope is uh, the gold standard because it's heavy and the weight gives it a lot of feel. So just a slight jiggling of the rope will um, transmit a certain feel to the horse. So uh, we want a rope halter, a training lead of marine rope, which is going to be at least 12 feet long, um, and up to 15 feet long. I, I personally use a 15-foot rope, but that's a little more cumbersome. Uh, 12 foot is minimum, and a lot of people are comfortable with that length of rope, more so than the 15. And then I prefer to use also a training flag, which is a uh, about a 48-inch uh, rigid stick with a nylon flag on the end of it. And that is just a, a tool to help defend your space. Um, it is um, sort of you would use like use it as some people might use a whip. I don't prefer to use a whip, um, but I would rather have a rigid stick. And then the nylon flag on the end of it just provides uh, a certain stimulus that horses will react to. So I can shake that flag at them uh, when I need to get their attention or move them out of my space. So that's all the basic equipment that you need to do groundwork. And um, the timing of your corrections is in all in all things about training horses, the timing of your corrections is critical. And when you either make a correction or give a reward to a horse, it has to be within three seconds of the behavior. And so getting back to that standing still exercise, um, if my horse takes a step, I have to correct him within three seconds. But here's the caveat. The sooner in the three seconds the correction occurs, the more likely the horse is to make an association. So the, the optimal time, according to research, is one half of one second. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> It, it is. It's not quite as fast as you think. If you were, for instance, if you were jogging, each of your steps would be about a half a second. So um, it, it's doable. But the sooner in the three seconds the correction occurs, the better. And then you, you just want to make one correction. Often I see people, they kind of get a little emotional and they they, instead of just making one good bump on the rope, they continue and continue and continue. Um, you just want one correction for one movement, and then the rope goes slack and you give the horse a, another chance. But mm -hmm. also the, the second part of the standing still exercise, which is really important, is that you have to teach the horse to keep his nose in front of his chest. No looking around. It's really important when you're riding and doing groundwork with horses to be in control of the horse's nose. If he is looking all around, He's looking for a way out. He's looking for an escape route or he's looking for something to spook at and he is not focused on you. Um, so when I'm doing this standing still exercise, rule number one, don't move your feet unless I tell you to. Rule number two, keep your nose in front of your chest. Nose. And so I want, I'm going to, he can move his head, 
within the distance of his shoulders. So if you think about the width of his shoulders, he can move his nose within that distance all he wants. And by doing that much movement, he can see 360 degrees around him. But when he takes his nose up and crosses that line, um, uh, that imaginary line that's projected from his shoulders, then I'm going to bump the rope as soon as he crosses that line. And again, if you are clear on what you're correcting the horses for and what his boundaries are and your corrections are timely, he will learn those rules very, very quickly. And that is something, I know it, you saw it with Margie while she was leading him, not, well, maybe doing the standing still exercise, but I remember her walking down that main path where we were shooting and the horse just looking out to the side and looking all around, and, and that was just downtime to her. I think, do you see that a lot, that some people just kind of think, oh, I'm just leading him around so he can look wherever he wants or or things like that that kind of, create more problem than they even know that they are having. Well, there's more to it than I think people realize because he's he's looking for alternatives to you. Okay. <laughs> and so if in other words, if the horse is totally hooked on to you and totally respects your authority, then he wants to be with you always because you give him that sense of safety and comfort. Um, mm-hmm. if he doesn't think that, then he wants away from you. So he's looking for something else. He's looking for an alternative. And, you know, I'm not talking about the horse occasionally, you know, let's say you're walking your horse down the row and something, you know, dramatic happens over there and he picks his head up to see what's happening. Right. That That's going to happen on occasion. But if the horse is constantly looking around and not at you, um, he's looking for a, an escape route. He's looking for a way to leave you. And he's certainly not committed to being with you. So when he is committed to you, when you've done all the groundwork and you've really established that bonded relationship with the horse, you don't even need the halter and lead rope anymore because the horse just wants to be with you all the time. And, um, you know, that's really the ultimate relationship to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and I love that, you know, you have your neck rope and can kind of work on something like that, that, you know, you still have something to hold on to that horse as you're needing to correct things now and then, but working at liberty with that ultimate goal that he's focused on you, he's going to do whatever you say, even if there's not a lot or anything to connect you. Yeah, well, once the horse has made the decision to stay with you and he's totally focused on you, then you don't really need the apparatus anymore. And in in every clinic that I do, we do groundwork in the morning. And by the second morning, um, there are maybe half or more of the people are leading their horses around without the halter and lead rope because the horse is first of all, not only is he committed to staying with you, but second of all, he's learned and you've learned how to communicate with him where you want him to go and how fast you want him to go and all of that. So he's learned body language cues and gestures um, so that you can tell him where you want him to be. And um, it's fun. It's, it's And it's not that hard. It's surprisingly not that hard. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Now, 
we've talked about standing still. Same thing happens when you're leading. Just don't let them look to the side and, and focus on you. Is there anything else while you're leading that you would add in as an exercise? Absolutely. So when we teach the horse good leading manners, we want to teach him to walk beside us and behind us. And that is not his natural instinct. His natural instinct would be to walk directly behind you. But that's not safe. So we want to teach him to walk beside us, but stay behind us. And one of the biggest pitfalls I see there is people that are leading horses with the rope and they're constantly holding the horse back or they're constantly dragging the horse to come with them. Um, So those are behaviors that we want to eliminate by teaching good ground manners. We want to teach the horse there is a specific place he should be, and this is not unlike teaching a dog to heal, where he learns that he has to stay beside you and he has to keep up with you when you speed up and he has to slow down when you slow down. And um, most importantly, I like to start with teaching the horse that there's a forward boundary he cannot cross. And so I set that boundary to be um, my uh, the fingers on my lead hand and I keep my lead hand out in front of me in order to give direction to the horse, gestures where I want him to go. Okay. And... I'll never, ever, ever hold a horse back when I'm leading him. I want to teach him that there's a boundary he can't go in front of. And so with the lead rope slack, we'll walk. And as soon as his nose gets in front of my hand, I'll jerk the rope, turn around, and back him up partially. And then we'll go about leading again. And it, it, for me, of course, I'm, I've been doing this a long time, and my timing is pretty good. So for me, it's only going to take, oh, maybe two minutes or or two, at the most, three corrections before the horse learns that's a boundary I can't cross. So now I have Mm -hmm. a horse that is just staying beside me, and if I speed up, he speeds up. If I slow down, he slows down. So in the leading manners, we want to teach the horse there's a specific place he can be where he should be, and as long as he's in that place, he's not going to get in trouble. If he gets in front of me, I'm going to put pressure on him. If he gets behind me, I'm going to get pressure on him. Uh, But if he stays in this specific place that I have dictated, um, then everything will be good for him. And so first we work on setting those boundaries, and then we work on what I call slow feet, fast feet. So you'll walk faster and the horse is expected to keep up with you, and you'll walk slower, and the horse is expected to slow down. Not because you pulled on the rope, but because he's staying with you and he's taking cues from your body, and he knows that there's a place he has to stay. Um, Mm -hmm. and And then we work on also turning, and turning the horse away from you. So most of the time you're leading from the left side, so we'd be turning the horse to the right, and we work on those turns becoming smaller and smaller and faster and faster. So now we're controlling the nose, we're controlling the feet, and we're controlling the shoulder. And we're requiring the horse to move out of our space. By turning him away from you, you're you're constantly reinforcing that horse moving out of your space and that you're controlling his space. And I've heard you say before, you really almost never when you're in training mode turn to the left 
if you're on the left side, you always want to be moving that horse away from you, out of your space, because of the things you talked about, that you're controlling that space, not pulling him into yours. Right. So first of all, just, again, from a pragmatic point of view, it doesn't make sense to pull a 1,000-pound animal towards you. <laughs> and um, secondly, and, and maybe more importantly, Every single turn is an opportunity to reinforce to the horse that you control his space. And so every time you turn, it's an opportunity to move him out of your space. And that's why we work on those turns becoming smaller and smaller until the horse actually begins Mm -hmm. to pivot in the turn. Um, Now, once he begins to pivot, he's putting out maximum effort to stay out of your space. And you're you're getting more control of his body um, beyond just controlling the nose. Okay, so staying out of your space, then directing a horse out of your space. So talk a little bit more about like the circling exercises and what you would like people to know first and foremost about that work. So then the the third set of exercises we're going to do with the groundwork It's called circling work, and this is where the long lead line is really important. And we're going to, instead of lead the horse, now we're going to drive the horse from behind in a circle around us. And we we work on this particular exercise in stages. At, At the first stage, it's simply a matter of can you get the horse to go in circles around you in both directions. Most people won't have trouble getting the horse to go to the left, but when they turn around and ask him to go to the right, that's when they start having trouble. And so there's some key key points you have to learn about the balance point of the horse is, is more or less at the girth area of the horse, so just behind his elbow, and uh, where your center, your girth is, up when you have him saddled, um, that's called the girth of the horse. And... To circle the horse, you have to be behind the balance point, and then you ask him for movement. He moves forward. If you're in front of the balance point and you ask him to move, he's going to turn away from you. So, um, And that's a technique used in herding, whether you're herding cattle or herding horses or whether horses are herding each other. There has to be awareness of that balance point. So as soon as you step in front of the balance point, the horse is going to turn around and move away from you. When you step behind the horse, he moves forward in a way. So the first step, at the first stage of circling, we just want to make sure you can drive the horse in a circle around you in both directions, that he is not pulling away from you or pulling towards the gate, or he's not cutting in and into your space and kind of crowding you. So we want him to find this nice little consistent orbit around you and ideally, I'd like to see his nose um, bent slightly towards me to the inside. And I'd like to see his hip moving slightly away from me. And when you first start circling work, you want this is when it's really important to be using your flag. Um, you need to be very cautious that you stay out of the kick zone of the horse because it is highly likely and it is expected that the horse will kick out at some point when you're doing this. That's normal horse behavior. So it is 
your job to stay out of the kick zone, and that's why you use a flag or a stick of some sort so you don't have to get too close to the horse's hind feet. Um, but when a horse is feeling defensive, he'll, he will lean his hip towards you. And so when you're doing this circling work with the horse, in the beginning it can seem a little aggressive to the horse. And if he's feeling defensive or if he's feeling like kicking out to, because he may feel like he's being attacked from behind by a dominant horse, which is essentially what is happening, um, then he'll, the first sign you'll see is he'll kind of lean that hip in a little bit towards you, and that means he's thinking about kicking. That means he's just in a defensive frame of mind. And that's fine. I, I, that's sort of to be expected in the beginning. And um, it's my job to just be aware of it and stay out of the way. As the horse comes to understand that what you're asking him to do is just move in a circle and there's nothing threatening about it, then you won't see that hip flexing towards you anymore and it'll actually drift to the outside of the circle and you'll see his inside hind legs step under up, up underneath his belly a little bit. The first stage of the circling work is just can you get the horse moving in a circle? And we want it moving energetically away from us, so at a, at a working trot in both directions. During this time, I like to work on teaching the low commands. So when I am ready to change directions, I'll ask him to stop. I'll say, I'll say row. I'll plant my feet. And then if he doesn't stop, I'll bump the rope um, or jerk his nose towards me to uh, stop him. And um, so in this, so we've worked on just getting the horse to circle. We've worked on teaching him the woe command. And then at the next step of this circling exercise, and the main reason we want to do it, the main benefit of the circling work is for what we call changes of direction. So I'll ask the horse to okay. circle to the left, and then I'll ask him to turn around and circle to the right, and then back to the left and back to the right. And each time you turn him, you're moving all four parts of his body. You're controlling his feet. You're moving his nose, shoulder, and hip. And um, so it makes for a highly beneficial exercise. Also, the horse gets really focused on you and starts looking to you for when the next time you're going to ask him to turn around. Um, so this is the, that's the most beneficial stage of the circling work. And, um, and from there, those... Those are the most basic groundwork exercises. Um, from there, actually, with each of these exercises, we can just keep going until the horse is better and better and better. And, you know, the standing still exercise becomes a ground tying exercise. Um, the leading uh, become the horse becomes so focused on you that you can actually uh, start doing it without a halter and lead. And then with the circling work, um, after we've, gone through what I just described, then you can start driving the horse in straight lines. You can start driving him over obstacles. Um, you can uh, have all kinds of fun. And you can also do the circling work without a halter and lead. So these three sets of exercises I've described are the most basic, but you can take each one of those and keep working and working and working until you really reach a level of perfection with your horse. Mm -hmm. 
and there's always something more to work on. And, but if people see these, you know, wonderful liberty displays or things like that, it all starts with what you were just talking about with those three simple exercises. Because the horses have to have those at all times before you're going to expect them to run around and pivot and spin and follow your dressers <laughs> while you're, you know, yeah. in an arena one-on-one with them. Well, like most sports, um, horsemanship always goes back to fundamentals, and these are the fundamentals of groundwork. All right. Well, very good, Julie. I think that's going to help a lot of people, whether they are new to horses or just have always gotten on and ridden and never done it. If it's something else to work on with your horse, it's something just to show that you have that ultimate relationship. Yep, and even if you already have a well-trained riding horse, um, doing the groundwork is going to make him even better because of the focus and respect that you get from the horse. And it's it's really satisfying. I think most people, they may not think it's going to be that much fun at first, but when the horse really hooks on to them and starts responding, it's really fun. Very cool. All right, well, thank you so much, Julie. Thank you. I'm Heidi Malako. I am here today with Desiree Johnson, the owner and designer of Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. And Desiree, you have a pretty interesting story being a rider of why you wanted to create the perfect jeans for people to ride in and why there was such a need for something that felt good in the saddle. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. Well, hello, Heidi. Thank you for calling. Yes, I do. Um, This all started uh, a few years before we bought the company. Um, I was uh, very lucky to have been able to have my own stable. Um, Right. I had three stalls and I had a few event horses in training and my own ring and I was teaching and because I'm an event rider, doing a lot of... uh, a lot of setting up jumps and grooming the ring and, you know, the PP&D, the poop pick up and drag, and uh, all, all the manual labor that goes along with the uh, four acres of mowing and uh, gardening and all of that, being a wife and the shopping. And, and I was in my tack room one day, and uh, the br- I was taking my breeches and boots off yet once again, Right. And I thought to myself, uh, there's got to be a jean out there. I need some blue jeans that I can also ride in. Right. Because I do so much teaching. I jump up on a horse for 10 minutes, then I jump down, and I have to set up jumps, and the, the you know, the britches just get, get thrashed. They're too nice to work in. I mean, re- to really, really work in. So I went to my local ranching home. Now, remember, I'm an English rider, so I went right. to a, a store specialty in Western, 20 different styles of Western blue jeans. And I asked the lady, I told her, I said, I want your top of the line Western riding jean. not going to say the name of it because I don't want to smash anything. Sure, sure. She took me to the top of the line, and I looked at them, and I looked at the seat area, and I saw that lump, your best riding jean. She said, yes. And I said, well, these aren't riding jeans. And she looked at me, she kind of blinked, and I said, there's this lump in the crotch seat area and that's the whole reason why I'm here is because I can't ride in country western dancing jeans I need a riding jean and she said well this is this is it and so I you know I went home and I told Eric I said you know what I'm going to start my own business it's going to be called Designed by Desiree and I told him my story and what I did is I went online and at that time I didn't find anything like what it was that I wanted but I did find a pattern 
a butterish pattern. So I ended up, to make a, a long story short, I made three pairs of these little sweatpants. Or, you know, one seamless inside, right. came up the front and the back, and they were basically little sweatpants with little knee pads. And I wore those little jeans. I, wore, I made a corduroy pair of winter and a lightweight jean material for summer. I wore them out. <laughs> Two years or so, wore them holes, holes, and what I loved about them is they were short, you know, right up to the ankle. I could stick them in my English boots, and then I would take my boots off, and I could work in these little jeans, pants, all day long, and I could go grocery shopping, and I could get down in the dirt and garden and do the mowing and move my jumps, so finally they, they wore out, and it was around Thanksgiving time, and uh, I said to Eric, I said, there's got to be somebody who has thought of this idea. I can't be the only one. So I sat down with Mimosa at the holiday time, and I found Smooth Stride Riding Jean Company. And the mission statement and the explanation was exactly what I was looking for. And they were interested in selling the company, and Eric and I had a powwow, and we said, let's do it. And this thing that we were, we didn't know anything about the manufacturing clothing business, nothing. I know it was really the learning curve was incredible. The inventory that we bought that we thought we were going to be able to buy was all messed up. It wasn't graded Mm. properly and didn't fit anybody. So we basically started from scratch. I redesigned this incredible already existing jean that had the seamless inside and was a boot cut. And I made it, I I recreated the whole, uh, basically the waist, contoured waistband, the Grading is correct. The rise is correct for riders, for mature riders, not teenagers with, you know, that weigh 115 pounds. Mm-hmm. They're designed for women who have either had kids or not, but have lived with their bodies and, you know, for, for mature women. Have the curves that they are supposed to have once they have reached adulthood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> now tell me, what do you mean by the grade? Is that the way that the shape changes up around your waist? Well, for instance, when we got the inventory, I had these tiny little rises and huge legs. So the legs didn't match. So the lower part didn't match the upper part. So if you have a size 10 jean, it is graded size 10 the whole length of the jean. And that's, uh, it's a, there's a science to it. And okay. so our jeans are, you know, we hired, literally hired a specialist to grade the patterns correctly. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of math. (laughs) You've learned lots of terminology about this. And and so the big thing about these that makes them for riding, what would you say are your your top features that make them for riders, not just for wearing on the street? But you could do both. Yes, you could. The main thing is that cross lump in the seat area has been removed. Literally, they're they're just like uh, how they build English riding breeches only, uh, their western boot cut. Second thing would be the rise in the back. It's hard to find a blue jean out there that calls itself a riding jean that has a, a correct um, rise. The contoured waistband, so it's just not a straight piece. It's also curved to shape a fit women's curves. And the stretch, it's a perfect amount of stretch. We have a special process that they don't bag out, so we've eliminated the bag out problem. So this gene that you buy will be the same size within eight hours or two days or three days. They don't, you just don't put them in the washing machine and they snap back and then bag out again. 
So if they don't fit, that probably means that you've gained a little weight. <laughs> and, and I'm imagining what this means when you're actually on a day-long trail rider, like with you with endurance riding. I grew up riding Western. We always rode in jeans. And I remember on longer days, like the inside of your leg, it'd be a little chaff. But that's just what you had. And I think it, it's interesting to hear you say with that English or endurance perspective, everything you're thinking of has to do with how can I wear this all day, be comfortable, and make it through the miles, right? Sure. Literally, there are some of us that we get in the saddle after 10 minutes. I was not comfortable. Right. So this, it's also for doctors, for instance, who just get on, who are teaching all day long. They need a safe place for their phone for emergencies because we have a beautiful old, you know, classic welt pocket on the top of the right side that mm-hmm. is, uh, doesn't have any closure to break or anything, and it's fits in snugly so it's not going to flop around. So even for instructors who have to get on a horse and just demonstrate something for 10 minutes and get back off again. Right, and feel comfortable in what you're getting down. Because I know when I have ridden English and you're in your breeches and sometimes you're like, whoosh, should I not? I I don't mind riding these in the saddle, but I definitely don't want to go in public in them. So I think that's a, a great aspect too, something you can be comfortable in, but you can get on and off and still do whatever you need to do. Sure. Yeah, I I was joking in another interview I did that you could be a lawyer with a blazer in an office and then you could go straight to the barn and you wouldn't have to change your pants all day long. And thinking about the rider, not somebody that's coming from the fashion world and how to make those look good at the barn, which they look good. All the jeans can look good, but mm-hmm. how can you find something that's going to keep you comfortable in the saddle, not have that big seam on the inside right where you're trying to have contact and right. communicate with your horse with your leg position. Feel good no matter what you're doing. I spend so much money on equipment for our horse. And so I really feel like this is a, a very valuable piece of equipment for for riders finally. Good. Well, thank you for taking this on and figuring out something that's going to be good for a lot of riders. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out SmoothStride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit JulieGoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn. 